Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Emma-Jane Graham, Senior Lecturer in Classical Studies at The Open University. Emma-Jane talks about recently filming at Delphi for The Open University's online platforms, and also the process of creating the various other learning tools that they have on there, including the Roman Emperor online game about Hadrian. Do you get it? Roman Emperor? Because he wandered around the empire. It ain't funny. It ain't funny. We also delve into Emma Jane's research interests, including disability in the Roman world and how that links to sensory studies. For instance, what was it like hearing Cicero speaking in the forum if you can't actually see him? Because obviously you have all the various uh, body movements, the various positions that you take up as you're arguing your case or making your speech. What's it like actually experiencing that? And say, if you can't see that or have any idea of the number of people in the crowd. As we've so often mentioned on the podcast, we're starting to fill out this image of how we imagine the Roman world with people who perhaps weren't present in this image now being added in. And I think this sphere of Roman society is one that many of us, and myself included, haven't really considered before. But when you actually do think about these things, it really does put a completely different spin on how you imagine the Roman world or a different, gives you a very different perspective on how you imagine the Roman world. We also chat about votive offerings and the votive project, which Emma Jane was a co-founder of, and you can check out the website online. A burial in ancient Rome, including the practice of ostracectum, in which fingers are cut off of the dead, which is pretty fitting given that this is the last episode to go out before Halloween. So, as always, thank you for joining me, and on to the show. Twitter, you're out in Delphi doing some filming uh, filming for the OU. What, what was that all about? I mean, I went to Delphi a few years ago, and I think it's probably one of the most spectacular places I've ever visited. Just obviously you have the impressive ruins, but in that landscape as well in the valley, it was pretty incredible. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I should confess it was, it was my first time actually in Greece. Um, oh, really? so I've been, yeah. yeah, so I've been a bit spoiled. And I also felt like a bit of an imposter as a Romanist turning up in in Greece but I was there because we're making a new uh, level one module at the OU a new arts and humanities module and as part of that I've been writing about um, Delphi and it's linked with Greek culture and and so on and so we uh, we went there to make a couple of little films that would introduce students to the site so like taking them on a kind of a field trip basically we can't take everyone to Delphi so we went and made a couple of little films thinking about you know, why ancient people went to Delphi, um, what was special about it, um, and also the built landscape. So how how the, the the monuments there interacted with each other and how they started to jostle for position and competition and all of that kind of thing. So, But it was an absolutely amazing experience. I feel really privileged to have spent, what, four and a half days on the site, including one day where we were able to go in before the tourists came in because we were doing some drone filming. Um, and to see the sun come up over the site was quite quite amazing. I, I lost count of the number of times I just gazed over the valley and just thought, wow, <laughs> you know, this is this is quite amazing. So now in my head, that is what ancient Greece just is. It's just the splendour of Delphi, really. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't think there are many better sites. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but when I did it, we actually went all the way around Greece in one big circle. Yeah. Um, but Delphi definitely stood out as mm-hmm. as a site which is I'd say it's pretty unique in its breathtaking nature as say in that in that landscape as well I guess as you're saying as well it's a case of people can't get to Delphi so you're bringing Delphi to them uh, yeah but you do uh, it's quite interesting actually because you do quite a few as you mentioned quite a few of those things with the OU how does the OU work <laughs> in terms of because it's <laughs> no, it sounds like maybe a bit of a silly question no it's but a- as you've said Previously, like the, OU, the the structure, obviously, of the Open University is not the way it doesn't work in the same way as other universities. I mean, hence its name, the Open University. So just p- before delving into the ways in which you teach, because I'm quite interested in the whole creation of the videos. And yep. uh, I was going to bring up the Hadrian, the Roman Emperor, yep. Roman Emperor game as well. But just before we do that, how is the OU um, structured? Well, that's quite a big question. But um, at its heart, I mean, the OU is is a university that, well, we have an open entry policy. So um, we are open to students, anyone who wants to study, you don't have to have any prior 
higher qualification. So you don't have to have A-levels. Um, you don't have to have any kind of, of experience, which means we have quite a diverse student body. And the way it works is um, it's distance learning. So students sign up and sign up for a, a degree and then different modules within that degree. And for each one, you'll receive printed books of, of materials that we've written. So um, books which um, have activities in them, but which also introduce you to whatever it is that you're, you're studying. And alongside that, you have an online site where you've got a study calendar, which sets out what you study every week. Um, it has interactive resources on it, interactive maps and so on. Um, it has links to the library and eBooks and those sorts of things. And then these films and audios that we, that we make. Because one of the challenges that I always think of as in terms of distance learning is the need that to motivate students who are studying quite often on their own to you know to engage with the materials and to feel motivated to study and one of the ways to do that is to give them a, a big mix of, of different sort of media uh different ways of studying and of course all of the, all of our students have very different study needs as well so it's very they're very diverse modules and then of course each student also has a tutor an associate lecturer who uh they'll either meet face-to-face -face or online for um, tutorials. Um, and they'll be part of a little tutorial group, so they also get to meet other, other students. So it's a, it's, a really, it's a really different way of, of teaching because there are lots of different elements to think of. It's not like just sort of turning up in front of a room of students and, and saying some stuff and hoping that they, um, that they understand it. It's much more structured in terms of how we think about how people learn so not just what we want people to learn, but how they learn and how they can sort of almost learn to learn as well. So how they can understand the learning process itself and what what, um, what works for them and how to organise their time and, and those sorts of things. Um, it's, that, that perhaps doesn't really do it justice, but it's, it's quite hard to sum up, really. Uh, no, I think I think that's a pretty pretty good summary overall. Because in your case, I suppose yeah, there is that issue. I mean, there's always the issue of finding ways of engaging with the people that you're teaching to get them interested. No two people really learn in exactly the same way. There's an awful lot of variety in the way that different people learn. But I suppose, particularly as you're saying, the, the thing you've got to think about is the fact that they're not actually present there in a yeah. classroom. It's about reaching them and. As you say it's quite it, i don't know maybe isolating is the right term but you obviously want to feel like you're part of a bigger whole everybody you know we are um, social animals so to speak i suppose as some people observe that sometimes the issues with things like phds as well that we spend a lot of time doing a phd essentially on our own and actually with Catherine harlow was on the podcast a few weeks ago um she pointed out that fact that perhaps with phds uh there should be more emphasis on doing things that are or finding ways of getting PhD students to work together rather than sort of maybe focusing on the fact that it's their own project. I mean, it is your own project, but you know, it's this way of connecting with people, um, even if they're not present on campus or, and it's over quite wide distances. I mean, with the stuff that you create, the, particularly the online content, how do you go about that? Were you, were you involved in the Hadrian Ro Roman <laughs> Emperor game or, or any of the other examples where you can sort of just, I don't know, briefly outline how that works? Because, I mean, we had a similar thing a few years ago at Kent with uh, Ray Lawrence when he had his YouTube videos about, uh, animated YouTube videos about childhood, essentially, in, in ancient Rome. But uh, you guys have got a whole variety of different things, the Hadrian game, um, an introduction to the Persians by Aeschylus. How do those things come together? Well, we also have through the OU, a platform called OpenLearn, which is uh, a free platform where we put small bits of our module materials and other resources um, so that people can just study things for free. They can get a taster of what they might study if they sign up for the Open University. And so usually what we would do is put a, um, a small part of a of one particular week's work on online. So think we've got things like um, you can learn Latin on there. And then every so often we get the opportunity to make something a bit different that can also go on that platform, but that is perhaps less about what it's like to study with the Open University and more sort of more wide reaching, I suppose. And some, well, I was going to say more fun, but studying with the Open University is fun, but slightly more um, kind of, um, well, just a, just a bit different. So the opportunity came up, we were making a module a few years ago on the Roman Empire. And within that module, uh, Hadrian was, turning out to be quite a key feature. And, we, and I, I actually joked as we started 
making the module that we needed some little cartoon character of Hadrian to just pop up and wave to students every so often. Um, and so when this opportunity arose to do something, um, that was kind of the idea that wouldn't go away. So um, I was went and had conversations with the people at OpenLearn and with a, a, an external company who uh, make little educational games. And we came up with the idea of creating a little game, a little sort of quiz-based game that allowed you to travel around the Roman Empire with Hadrian. Uh, so you get to, you know, you get to walk around the empire with him, meeting different people and going to different places um, and ask, answering questions on the way that mean that you find out a bit about Hadrian, you find out a bit about the empire. And then if you if you get a certain number of questions right, you get to choose an object. And the idea there is that you can think about how the objects, the, the artifacts and things that survive from the Roman world um, kind of link into the things that you've just learned about it. So what's an appropriate uh, thing to, to take away as a sort of souvenir of your, of your trip? Uh, and so we kind of tried to make it quite fun and lighthearted, a little cartoon styly. Um, my favourite bit is where Antinous he meets Antinous, and then Antinous just follows him around um, before he, <laughs> before he falls off his boat. Um, so it's it's what we think of as this um, thing called sort of informal to formal learning. So it's a way of learning without kind of really thinking that you're learning. Um, and then if you enjoy that, you can go on and look at some of the other material on Open Learn that's about. Uh, about Hadrian, um, and you might even think about, you know, signing up to uh, to study a degree. Um, so it's they're they're kind of um, they're always fun things to do and things that we always like to do. Um, and um, I have to say, it's one of the most fun things I've ever got to do as part of my actual job. <laughs> you know, having audio files arrive in my inbox. You know, which which of these voices would you like for Hadrian? It's not something that normally happens. So yeah, so that's kind of what that's about, yeah. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask about how how that process works. So do they uh, come up with a variety of different designs for Hadrian and cartoon format, yeah. and as you say, different voices, and send you different examples, and you have to Pretty choose much. and uh, make suggestions about it? Am I right? I mean, just looking at the image because I've got it up on my computer as well. Has he got has he got blemishes on his face? Because I know he was supposed to, supposedly uh, did have those on his face, which apparently is why he has yes. a beard, right? Uh, or suggested um, places did you have were those sort of things that were suggested yeah i'm not sure if he does but he certainly has he should he should certainly have the little crease in his ear that is it turns up on some statues and is some suggestion he might have had some health condition and in fact the very first thing you do when you start the game is build hadrian's passport and that is little things like putting together his picture on his passport does he have a beard or doesn't he have a beard and in the process you learn you know why he had why it's actually quite important that Hadrian had a beard and how that links to um his interest in the Greek world and also you know what was what was his nickname and things like that and there is a little bit in there about the uh increase in his ears so yeah it was a case of um of of having having people yeah imagine what a little cartoon Hadrian might be like and um and then me getting to approve or disprove it but to be honest um what they sent through I was just it was I was just like wow yeah that's that's great I did have, we made a few tweets to the clothes that they put him in to make sure that um, it was kind of generic and, um, um, but definitely Roman rather than Greek. Although actually when he goes into the bathhouse, um, he does, his clothes actually do come off at one point. Um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, um, it's good, it's, it's good fun, but it's also, uh, there's a quite a lot of work that goes into it um, in order to not misrepresent. So we've also got um, one of my colleagues um, or former colleagues now, um, Emma Bridges, who I think you've spoken to in the past. She also made um, a couple of short films uh, called Troy Story, Troy Story 1 and Troy Story 2, which tell the, the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey in, in two minutes. And um, and they're kind of cartoony and, and quite fun. But recently we also made Antigone, a short film about Antigone, where the tone had to be quite different and they had to think quite hard about how they could still make it um an enjoyable experience but also not um so light-hearted because antigone and i'm not an expert in greek tragedy but i do know that antigone is not the cheeriest of, of stories yeah i suppose that's the the balance that you sometimes need to find as you're saying the antigone is is in many respects a very bleak story so putting it into cartoon format you have to find that balance of not making it seem too whimsical yes. 
you don't you run the risk maybe of not doing justice to what what the aim of the play was i mean yes. if we ever really entirely know but all the different readings that people have in it and what it means to people although i suppose on the flip side of that it's it's fascinating there's so many things you can do with cartoony art though mm-hmm. i recently read i've been meaning to read it for years i don't know if you ever came across it the uh, the graphic novel mouse no which is about a the guy that wrote it his father survived auschwitz oh. And then the actual car- the the graphic novel itself is it's like comic book format where the uh, the Jews in it are all mice, the Nazis are all cats, and then the and then the the local Polish people often presented as being pigs. I don't think that's supposed to be in a derogatory way, but um, he basically just uses different animals. Like they they all have human characteristics. Like they all wear clothes and uniforms, etc. But um, yeah, it was it's a fascinating way of doing it. It was very interesting just looking at it in terms of how he used a comic book format to tell this very tragic story, and you know how how life developed for Jewish people in Poland under the Nazis. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a very very bleak story, but it, again, it was just very interesting how he used a essentially what is a cartoon style, we would say, to to represent that. So uh, sometimes you can do things with that kind of style that you can't do with yes. people acting it out as well, I suppose. Yeah, you can do different things with um, with with cartoons, but the, the tone is quite important. And I think, actually, if you look at the Antigone film alongside the, the Troy Story films and, and Hadrian, you can see that they're kind of trying to do slightly different things. The, 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 even down to the, the colour palette is, is quite different from Antigone. So, but with Hadrian, the aim was kind of fun, really. I have actually had emails from from ancient historians saying that they still haven't managed to get 100% in it. And um, and it's kind of bugging yeah. them. Uh, it wasn't meant to be hard, uh, but it was meant to make you think. So it's obviously um, having some kind of effect on people. I guess that just goes to show you never stop learning. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> I mean, kind of just a dot out, actually, uh, works quite well when you're talking about the design of Hadrian, because one of your main interests in research terms in the ancient world is disability yes that's right yeah yeah i mean I, I i find that very fascinating in terms of one of the things that crops up over and over again that we talk about on the podcast is particularly when we reflect on the future of the discipline and talking about people i suppose that might have been marginalized both in the past and also i suppose in terms of the modern study as well but i found that very interesting in terms of populating the ancient world because i suppose Whenever you see representations of the ancient world, we don't, well, I am guilty of this as well, you don't really tend to think about the position of disabled people in that society in much the same way, I suppose, we talked previously on the podcast, as I say, about filling out this picture of the ancient world. I was quite interested about that, just, I, I mean, this is a very, very broad question, but in, in, say, for example, the Roman Empire or even Rome itself, was there, was disability quite common? Is that is that something that when we're drawing a picture, say, of the forum in Rome, that you'd actually think there should be more people exhibiting things like disability in that picture? Or what What was the case? Um, very much so. I think I think the disability or what we think, what we call disability, so disability and, and impairments, so sensory impairments, so visual impairments, hearing impairments and so on, mobility impairments, were actually really quite common. Now, a few decades ago, if you'd asked somebody about disability in the ancient world, they probably would have dismissed it and said, well, um, they killed them all at birth. They didn't allow them to survive. They were marginalised. They were stigmatised. They weren't allowed to be part of society. Um, But increasingly over the last, I suppose, 10 to 20 years, people have started to question that and to look at the sources in new ways. Um, And there are kind of, I suppose the textual sources, so written sources, talk a little bit about people with disabilities. Um, so they, they mention um, people with, with visual impairments in particular, the legal sources, and, and Christian Lars has written a lot about this. They, they talk about you know, whether they can inherit and, and so on. And if you read between the lines of a lot of the written sources as well, you can start to detect people with, um, with impairments. But then, of course, on the other hand, you've got the archaeological evidence, and that's kind of what I'm interested in. And I think that suggests that, not, not that impairment was the norm, but certainly that a large percentage of people throughout their lives would have experienced some sort of perhaps temporary impairment, perhaps some kind of long-term disability. So on the one hand, you've got the bioarchaeological evidence from graves uh, and the work that's being done on uh, looking at sort of health levels, but also particular 
conditions that these uh, remains can tell us about. Uh, and then you've got things that other things that I'm interested in, like anatomical motives. So you've got people going to sanctuaries during a particular period of the Republic and leaving behind models of body parts that are usually linked to requests for some kind of healing. Now, they might be long-term conditions that we might not think of as, as disabilities, but you know they might also be uh, related to uh, mobility impairments, so you know, all, all sorts of conditions that, that, that might cause that. Um, you get large numbers of eyes that suggest lots of people had problems with their eyes, whether that's disability or not is a, is a slightly different thing. So I think there is, I think there's a lot of evidence that people in the ancient world, that their, their experience, their experiences were of not the kind of normal body that we tend to associate with, with health in the modern world. So when you say about, should we populate images of the forum? I think we definitely should. And one of the questions I often think about is if you were at the back of the crowd um, and you had a visual impairment, you couldn't see Cicero standing up. You couldn't see these gestures he was doing, but you might be able to hear them. Um, or equally, you might not be able to hear what he's saying, but you might be able to see them. And I think those are kind of interesting questions to think about how um, different people within ancient society did actually experience what we tend to think of as kind of the normal events of, of what went on in, say, Rome. Um, and it's not it's not it's not it's not the same at all because I would never I wouldn't claim to have a disability but I am very short sighted and without my glasses I couldn't see the uh, inscriptions on the top of um, triumphal arches in the form for sake of argument so I think just um, I think when, once we start to acknowledge that there was a host of different bodily experiences that were possible I think I think that's quite important for um, kind of rethinking what we think we know about experiences of, of ancient life. Mm, yeah, because we've we've had people on the podcast as well, people like uh, Patty Baker, Laura Nissen as well, who their their current research focuses on sensory yes. studies in the in regards to the ancient world, much like much like yourself. Um, and I, I find that stuff very very fascinating in terms of, as you say, because. I guess in the past we had this presumption of looking at the ancient world through the eyes in particular of largely males, able-bodied males. We don't take for granted that different people experience the world in different ways. And obviously, as you're saying, if if somebody has a sight problem, um, they're not necessarily going to be able to see the person up on the rostra talking about whatever there's all these gestures that go with it they they, they wouldn't necessarily know all that stuff but they would hear them and you know how do you experience that in the crowd because you don't you hear I suppose the crowd around you as well but you don't necessarily you know you don't have the same kind of concept of it because you don't necessarily know the number of people that or you can't get like an idea of the number of people there if that makes sense I remember when we were at the ICS for the couple of days conference on temples and you were talking there about the experience of people going up to the temples on top of hill sites and how different people would make their way up the hill and how you get back down again. Um, that, I mean, that stuff's just very interesting as well, because somebody like myself, I'm, I'm not particularly good with heights. Um, like if you st st stuck me on the top of a really high staircase leading up to a Roman temple and I came out of it and I had to go down it, I'd be a bit like... <laughs> uh, you know it, it's it's interesting but we just we, we we often or have often presumed that everybody experiences this, this the roman world in the same way and uh yeah i mean it's fascinating that when you think about it like that just how that affects perceptions of things when you say that you can't people might not be able to see the inscriptions you know we talk about you know the importance of inscriptions in the ancient world but i suppose in some cases the, you'd have the inscriptions but maybe people can't see it but then I guess they could run their fingers over it and actually feel it yeah. I don't know that's something that never really occurred to me before actually almost <laughs> until this minute <laughs> you could actually understand what inscription says not by reading it with your eyes but perhaps running your fingers over it because you'd probably be able to trace the indents in some cases possibly or possibly you'd have somebody who was with you read it out to you so you'd oh yeah that's another alternative yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean it depends where it is doesn't it I mean if it's, if it's yeah, yeah. top of a building but um yeah I think um I think actually this is where, in fact, I'm, I'm in the process of finishing off a chapter about this, right as we speak, about 
the overlap between sensory studies and disability studies, because I think the two, actually, there's a lot of potential for the two to work much closer together than, uh, than they have done so far, because a lot of um, disability studies to date have been based around textual sources. And so in a way, we most of those aren't written, most of fact, any of them, I don't think, are written by people who experienced impairment and disability. So they are kind of looking at disability through the lens of what society says is disability um, and what um, you know what attitudes were towards it we don't get the lived experience of it there's nobody's you know writing about what they you know what their their own personal experience of the world is and I think that that sensory studies has the potential to really allow us to start to understand those experiences so the the things that aren't recorded in written sources um, and to date Sensory studies themselves have been quite ableist in that they have tended to talk about or try to reconstruct a sensory experience, but the assumption is usually that everyone can see the same thing, hear the same thing, move around in, in the same way. So I think if we if we can sort of find a way to bring those two together, then we might start to understand um, sort of lived experience for people with disabilities, but also then use that in turn to help us understand sort of, you know, the, the wider context and how those, how their experiences fed into um, these other social attitudes and expectations that we see in the textual sources. So that that chapter is um, is sort of looking at that and then using the example that you mentioned that I did talk briefly about at the um, Sanctuaries Conference that you've got a, a massive temple complex like Fortuna Primigenia at Prineste that's got these big ramps that go up the front and everyone assumes okay well you go up the big ramps and then you go up the steps and um, you know it's all it's impressive and you get a great view from the top but then when you stop and think well you might think well a ramp that makes it easier than steps if you've got a mobility impairment but these ramps are really steep um, they're, they're going to be hard to walk up even if you don't have a, a mobility impairment so what happens when we start to think about that, the experience of uh, going to a sanctuary, experiencing ritual from a sort of multiplicity of perspectives. So the people who you know are out of breath by the time they get to the top of the ramp um, and those who um, can't get up it unaided. And I just think I'm, I'm quite, I think, I think it's quite important that we start to create or at least appreciate that there's a diversity of experiences. And although we'll never know what a, an actual individual experience. There are ways to think about how potential individual experiences might have existed. And I think that the, the sensory studies, certainly sensory archaeologies, can be really important to that. Yeah, it also just strikes me as well. I guess it, in many cases in the ancient world, people having like a dis disability, um, that might come about at any point in their life. I guess there's there's probably a tremendous number of uh, veterans from the army yeah. that when they, they complete their service, I mean, some of them have probably lost limbs or in some cases it might be a case they've suffered an injury, uh, even not in combat, but something that's never properly healed, particularly in their legs or in their arms or back as well. My God, yeah. you know, from working in commercial archaeology, I've had experience of what it's like when your back suddenly goes. Um, fortunately, I think it's mainly muscular rather than actually spinal damage. Um, but um, but just for a couple of days of being laid up and not being able to move because of pulling like a muscle in my back, you you realise that, I mean, these things can strike people at any time. And obviously in the in the ancient world, there's no health and safety <laughs> regulations. You know, a lot of people work in very manual jobs as well. It's probably very easy to suffer uh, a lot of a lot of injuries. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting as well, like what that means about people. I was talking to somebody about this before and I can't even remember when it was or what it was on the podcast or if it was something I even read. I don't know, it just suddenly pops into my mind before. But I swear there's something about somewhere in the literature about if you get stabbed in the front that shows that you that's a good thing to show scar wise mm. because you've got them in facing in battle if they're on your back then that's bad because it probably looks like you're a slave who's been whipped yeah. but that's just very something that just randomly popped in my head and i cannot remember where i even got that from now which is going to really bug me it might have been a previous episode of the podcast i think it might have been somebody talking about it but it's uh, just interesting how that the image of somebody and how their body has been altered because of their experiences affects people's perception of them yes I mean, it sounds familiar to me and i can't place it either but i know that um um jane draycott for example who's done work on prostheses has sort of looked at that sort of thing and this idea that you know limb loss in in war is 
acceptable because it's uh, it's a mark of honor in some ways uh, whereas it, limb loss caused by you know, accidents or hard work or if you're an enslaved person for example uh, would be seen completely different or sorry completely differently but I think also that does also remind me that I think the one thing that the, the moment is really missing from these studies of disabilities is that enslaved experience and I have yet to work out how we can identify that because I think it, it, it's possible to to start thinking about what kinds of experiences people in the ancient world might have had in terms of in, impairments but how we then relate those to kind of an enslaved experience I think becomes quite difficult because I mean I, I'm talking for, about about sanctuaries and I'm sort of assuming that the local community is going to these sanctuaries but I'm not actually really making status differentiations within that and I think you think about you know all these people who are enslaved on farms and in the mines and so on who are likely to to have had very distinctive lived experiences and um, what I would hope is that eventually we can find a way to access those as well but um, at the moment I'm not completely sure what that is. Mm. It's just very intriguing when you think about how the, well, I mean, throughout history, I mean, we, you can apply this to any period of history, I think, really, just the idea of talking about populating the image of how we imagine past societies, but just the way that different people would experience it and you know, quite tremendous differences in the way they would have experienced it. Just to go back, because you mentioned the the Votives project. So that's that's your research makes up part of that as a broader whole. Am I right that this is a uh, a joint project between you and a number of other people as well? Yeah, the joint project with Jess Hughes, um, also at the OU, and it's kind of it's a very informal project. Um, we called it the Votive Project because that's kind of what it was. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything <laughs> anything cleverer than that. Um, and it kind of emerged out of the fact that we both have close research interests in uh, votive practices, and in particular anatomical votives, but also other types of, um, of votive offering. So Jess is, is interested in later centuries as well, and in sort of the Catholic, uh, Catholic Italy, uh, reception of, of votives and so on, and I'm interested in swaddled babies and, and other sorts of things. And we used to have, we used to just get together in the office and have these conversations where we just get excited about something we've read or something we were thinking about and nearly always we'd say oh there must be somebody working on this wouldn't it be great to know what they think or um you know there must be something out there on this or maybe we could you know who can we ask about this and wouldn't it be brilliant to bring other people into these conversations and so we decided to just set up what's effectively a, a blog where we could share some of the sort of informal thoughts and things that we've been having uh, things that we've come across and thought were interesting but where we could also invite absolutely anybody who's interested in anything to do with votives and we define that quite loosely quite generally in terms of offerings to gods so that they could you know write short pieces for us tell us about the research they're doing tell us about interesting things um we, st we started it off quite it's it's still i suppose it's still quite small but it's it's grown we started off by talking to the people who we knew and asking them to write something for us and it's kind of expanded with people contacting us and saying you know we found your website i'm an artist and i am really interested in this and i've got this this project going on this exhibition or something that is, is related to voters can i tell you about it we've had um practitioners so um jess has interviewed uh, catholic priests and things about the the um, processes of votives um and it's kind of sort of slowly snowballed um, and we've been quite surprised at the interest that we've that we've had and the fact that there are people out there not just in academia we wanted to, to hear from people who were using votive offerings or who were being inspired by them so we've got our little um our little blog basically and we, i do what i suspect you probably do for for the podcast which is corner people at conferences and say oh you mentioned something that sounded vaguely uh votive would you like to write something for us but we don't ask we don't expect to um, invite people we just hope that people will come to us as well and say you know can i can i tell you about my research project do you think votives in some respects are related to uh an idea that it gives people some sort of agency over difficulties regardless of what your beliefs are or whatever, I, I, sometimes it feels like 
to me that there's a there's an element to it where you know if you're suffering from a disease or or it's a loved one that's in trouble of some sort or whatever we don't ever want to feel helpless we want to feel like we can do something and sometimes actually having like a physical offering is is part of that i mean it strikes me when you were talking about uh, modern examples talking to catholic priests i remember being in italy uh visiting a friend in livorno and he took me to a church uh, outside of Livorno and uh, inside it's just completely full of photos of people that people have attached to the walls because that person is suffering from something or perhaps they passed away or whatever and it was kind of there just as an offering I don't know it just it just strikes me as having something quite physical that you can touch maybe I don't know maybe maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm right I don't know that it just gives people a sense of having some they can do something rather than do nothing if they feel a bit helpless do you think that's part of it? Um, I think it probably is part of it. Yes, I think I think certainly in the ancient world where you've got the lack of healthcare that we have today, um, but you've got access to the divine who can intervene in your body and who who might be able to do something about it. Making a votive could be if if it was because um, they're not completely clear that they're all associated with health. I mean, certainly anatomical votives often are, but they might mean other things. Um, yeah, going to the gods and sort of almost trying to sort of take control of your body that is out of control in some way because it's ill or it's it's not functioning as you should as it should be i think there is is a certain power in that and i think also yeah i mean anatomical voters are odd little things they're parts of the body that is that are detached from the body when you give them to the gods they are your body but they are not your body they're a representation of it but they're also um you know, in the eyes of the god, they are the body part that you've given them. So they're, um, they're it, it, I think there is, I think there's, I think they're quite complex in the ways in which they give people an opportunity to try and take control of something that is out of control. And of course, the other thing that I always think of is, well, did they work? I mean, did, did it, could you go and ask a god to intervene in your body and, um, did it actually happen? You know, I, I'm, there are a lot of instances where I can imagine that it, it just it didn't get healed. It didn't, you know, suddenly you weren't cured of something because that's, you know, I don't want to bring like Jupiter down on my head or anything, but I'm not sure that the gods <laughs> actually exist. So, you know, so why do people keep doing this? And they obviously did it because they were getting something out of it. And on the one hand, maybe that is a feeling of just trying to do something and, and trying to sort of, um, have some control over the situation but also people have written about the difference between healing and curing and, and curing is you know, where something will uh, a condition that you have will go away but healing can be a sort of uh, a whole body and a mind thing where you actually you feel a bit better because you have at least done something and you have the hope that um, at least you've you've tried and that the deity might intervene and might do something about it um so they're they're quite i think they're quite complex things but definitely something about um being being proactive i suppose i do wonder as well do you think it's possibly i'm just freestyling here but whether or not it's a case of also when you go to do something like that you probably encounter other people that have similar similar problems um so maybe also a case of there's also a little bit about it about feeling part of a community of people that are also facing a similar hardship you meet people in a similar situation and it helps you know that you're not the only one facing those difficulties I guess I don't know I mean it's not maybe they're all sat around in the temple like a kind of a self-help group or whatever but just the idea of as well that it's about not just the relationship between them and the deities but also them and other people that are also suffering as well I don't know that's just purely me just speculating well well, no that sounds like something that I wrote in a chapter a couple of years ago about um exactly that (laughs) yeah about the fact that um if you went to a sanctuary seeking healing, you would encounter lots of other people who were seeking healing. Um, so these were places where you would see people, you know, like like you, who you might feel part of a more of a community. Um, but also, even if you if those people weren't all there, even if they didn't happen to be there at the same time as you, if you went into the sanctuary and saw this array of body parts in front of you. Um, and you're going to put your body part in amongst that collection, then you're kind of um, you're being reminded of this this community, and it's a community in which of which the gods are a part as well. So I think that I think that is something that we perhaps underestimate the um, 
it, it, I suppose it's an imagined community, you might say, um, but one that is potentially quite important for, for people. So did you come to study these themes um, from your PhD, which was on burial, if I'm right, uh, was particularly, um, but is it burial? children or am I getting that mixed up in my uh, head uh, your PhD was definitely on burial uh, <laughs> but was it, on, was it based around like looking at the burials of people looking at the bodies of people is this where the idea came from or is this something for, for these topics that you're interested in even prior to that no it, it it doesn't really it comes as something that kind of well you know how research goes sometimes you you, you fall into something my, my PhD was on the burial of the poor so again I, I guess a marginalized group but it, it came out of being fed up of reading about the fact that just because the poor didn't have access to the fancy funerary monuments and so on, that they just didn't care and they threw they threw their loved ones into pits. So it was kind of about reassessing um, reassessing that. And then off the back of that, I then had a, um, a, a fellowship at the British School at Rome, which was another death-related project that was looking at a really weird uh, funerary ritual called Ostracectum, where... Um, for a short while, it appears that people may have chopped the fingers off dead bodies and treated them slightly differently as part of the funerary ritual. Um, so maybe that's where I got interested in body parts. But sort of doing some uh, reading around that kind of got drawn into work on the body in general. And I think it's I think it comes sort of comes from looking into some of the theory body theory and kind of thinking about ways and context in which I could explore that further. So I kind of moved from being interested in the in the dead body to um, kind of religion more, more generally. And that happened via another step, which was a project I did on swaddled infant votives, which I thought was going to take me down a route of looking at uh, ancient childhood and ancient family, but actually took me more towards the religion side of things um, and brought me into contact with the anatomical votives and other types of votives so it's it, it's kind of it's, it's a pretty non-linear kind of route really but it, it certainly comes from I think a long-standing interest in, in in the body but also kind of lived experience I, I'm interested in ordinary people and their real or as close to their real experiences as as we can get um so going from the you know the poor all the way through to where we are now with disability and and religion and you know lived experiences of religion don't know if that makes any sense <laughs> yeah well no as you say none of these it's very rare i think anybody has a very straightforward path like you sort of everything happens quite uh sometimes well maybe a good way of describing it is organically yeah. um as you kind of moved from one research area to another i've just got to ask when you say they cut their fingers off because they were treated differently, why? What was the what was the reasoning for that? Do you know at all? Is there any indication why that was? It's very difficult to know. I mean, I have a theory. Um, whether or not other people agree with that is that is is up to them. It used to be. It it it, it seems to be quite a rare practice. There's very little archaeological evidence for it, and there are only a couple of textual references to it. Festus is the most. Um, detailed one where he says that they um they they i think it's festus or it could be barrow it's been a while since i've thought about it but anyway they, they talk about um setting aside a bone of the dead person for purification as part of the later funeral so i think that it's linked to ideas of of personhood and moving the dead from the world of the living into the into the world of the dead so i think that people were might remove finger bone and um and go through the process of the funeral and then nine days later when they gather to finally sort of close everything to finally say this is the, the the purification point where the the funeral process is over that they purified that finger that they've been set aside as part of that process that kind of finally sort of brought everything to an end so that's the point where everyone gets purified but the dead have to be purified as well and if you've buried them or if you've cremated them then you haven't got anything to purify but if you kept out his finger then you can but it's 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 a it's a slightly obscure thing the, the archaeological evidence for it is is quite limited um in the late 1700s or mid 1700s a whole pile of small pots with little bits of bone were found just outside Rome on the Via Appia and these little pots have got names and dates written on them so that's probably one example of this happening of course the excavators at the time 
dumped the bits of bone out and kept the nice little pots because that was what they were interested in. Um, but the, there's also an example from Herculaneum. So I don't know if you've been to Herculaneum, but when you go um, into the site, right um, at the at the entrance, there's a, a statue of Marcus Nonius Balbus, who is a big patron of the town, and an altar, a dedicatory altar that's got a big inscription on it. And underneath that altar, there was a pot with a finger bone in it. Um, so it's it it's clearly a rite that's been used for some particular purpose um, for him, but we don't tend to, to to find much more evidence for it. And that's a bit rambling. Sorry. <laughs> No, that was fine. <laughs> Makes complete sense to me. Gets the uh, gets the fun gets the thumbs up yeah. from me. Hey. Yeah, thumb, uh, yeah, I know it is. It is a bit weird, and I have to say, like, um, well, my family, you know, when I was telling them all about this, they're, you know, okay. And I think they thought, you know, once I, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, going working on religion these days and all of that, and they're like, oh, well, that's all right. Then I'm like, no, but it's still body parts. It's still, you know, it's still slightly odd things. I mean, well, most of what we do in archaeology, in some way or another, is always a bit odd. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, you talked there a bit about kind of your journey to, to your research now, but so what was it that actually got you into studying the ancient world? Where, where did that interest actually come from? Um, well, it wasn't really until university. I, I, my, my parents would tell you that my interest in archaeology came about when I was probably about eight or nine. and We had a, a family holiday somewhere on the south coast and I invented the I'm going to bury all the buckets and spades on the beach and then dig them up because it'd be fun to find them uh, game, which they uh, didn't approve of because I literally buried everything and I didn't leave us anything to dig with and I don't think we found everything. But I think I kind of got into archaeology probably from the age of about 13 or 14 and it was Time Team. Um, Time Team came on the telly and I suddenly realised that I'd always been interested in history, but you could do history by touching and seeing and working with the stuff that people had kind of left behind so after so from that point on it was just a given I was going to go and study archaeology but I didn't have any particular interest in in a particular part of archaeology or a period of archaeology so I went off to university went to University of Sheffield signed up for archaeology and prehistory and in the first year they basically started at the beginning so we had human origins and so I was like oh this is brilliant I'm going to do this um, and then, of course, we moved on in the Paleolithic. And I was, oh, look at those hand axes. No, I'm going to do this. And that kind of went all the way through till we got to the Romans. And I was like, okay, no, this is this is what I'm interested in. These guys have got it sorted, although I realise now that they totally haven't. <laughs> and so that was kind of where I, I I kind of stopped. And it was, yeah, it was learning about, about Roman archaeology in, in my first year. And then I um, sort of you know, took as many Roman modules as I could after that and then stayed on and did an MA in European historical archaeology which was kind of um, ancient and some early medieval um, stuff but um, I think it was particularly during that MA that kind of my interests crystallized and yeah I became a, a proper Roman archaeologist. Just to just to know as well, because you taught at the University of Leicester for one year, right? As well, yeah, I did. Yeah, um, yeah. That was two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. I looked up, yeah. but uh, I was there from two thousand nine to two thousand ten. So uh, <laughs> just just missed you. Happened so many times on this podcast. I talked to people that ended up at universities the year after I did, <laughs> or uh, there was maybe a slight overlap, but that, um, I was probably too busy too busy playing FIFA at the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, oh, I still play FIFA now, but there you go. But yeah, so I mean, just kind of moving towards uh, tying up then, because that was quite good, actually, because it circles us back around, I suppose, because you're talking about the tangibility of it, which links it back to uh, sensory studies. There you go. That's a, that's a good way to bring it full that's circle. Good. I was just going to say, so do you have anything on the horizon that you would like to, to advertise to share at all? Or anything presently out that you want to share at all? Um, good question. Well, obviously, tell everyone to go and have a look at the Voters Project, thevotersproject.org, and to, to get in touch if people are interested, if they're working on anything votably, um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, I mean, I have, well, I'm waiting for the peer reviews for the book manuscript that went in earlier this year, which I hope might be out next year. It depends on the reviews, doesn't it? That's about um, Roman religion and trying to rethink how we approach Roman religion and trying to think about it from a, a lived perspective, but also a, a, a thing-based perspective. So starting with material rather than um, kind of with the textual sources. And I hope, if the computers like it, that that might be out um, quite soon. Um, 
and yeah, and and I guess the the chapter that I'm working on at the moment about senses and um, disability that hopefully should be out in the next year or two in a a book on ancient disability studies that's being edited by uh, Ellen Adams from KCL. We hosted a conference last year that brought together disability studies people and ancient disability studies people um, to sort of talk about what we could learn from each other and the um, the some of the papers from that are going to be published in the next few years so I think that's um, that's quite an important thing so yeah I don't really think I need to sell myself anymore do I? I don't know <laughs> I'm not very good at that <laughs> uh natural uh british british modesty i yeah. think it is sometimes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah also as well you're, you're you're on twitter as well yes i am on twitter what's my i'm e underscore j uh graham on twitter yeah that's quite a new well i think it's new but i think i've probably been on there for a year or two now that's something i resisted for a long time and um and now i'm yeah i'm quite liking twitter it's a good place yeah. to uh, find out what's going on and um, yeah and ignore the stuff that you don't want to know yeah yeah well that's the thing as as so often we talk about on the podcast um yeah twitter it's it's got a lot of benefits also got its downside and sometimes it's a case of working out how to navigate that i mean it's been great for doing things like the podcast because uh some of the people i've had come on the podcast i would never have met if it wasn't for for twitter so um no it definitely definitely serves its its purpose yeah. and it has become a very good place to uh to meet people particularly particularly in the uh academic sphere as well i think it's yeah. it's good for that so uh so yeah Cool. Right. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Cliche.